The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Good gift from God. Today we're going to just jump right in. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. It is page 61 in the Red Bible and page 98 in the Children's Bible. This summer, if you're new, we're working through the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are not obstacles to our freedom. I always want to remind us of that because they're not obstacles of our freedom, but they are a gift of a loving, heavenly Father who has set us free through Christ and now teaches us how we can live in light of that freedom. The commandments are given to revive our soul. And so as we look at the commandments thus far, we've seen that, that there is the, the surface level reading of the commandment, but also penetrates much deeper into our hearts. And it's no different today as we get into the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment is in verse 13, but we're going to start in verse 1 just to remind ourselves and impress into our minds and into our hearts God's commands. And so let's start together, Exodus 20, verse 1, and we will read down through verse 13. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And now today's passage, the sixth commandment, verse 13. You shall not murder. Let's pray. Lord, as we turn to the sixth commandment today, it is a commandment that seems so simple. Don't murder. And yet the ramifications and the questions that come out of it are so deep and so pervasive. Lord, as we navigate tricky waters today, pray that you would that you would navigate your speaker. Pray, Lord, that that I would communicate your truths, God. God, we pray that you would help us not to only be against death, but before life, and to be proponents of helping people live as God intended them to live. 
Guide us and direct us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The commandment, do not murder, is probably the most universally accepted commandment. I mean, I don't know anybody who rejects the command, do not murder. I don't know any government that disagrees with the command that people should not murder. In every society, there is punishment for people that murder. And yet the reality is, in the 20th century, we had lived through the bloodiest century in the history of mankind. The University of Hawaii put together a table that I want to share with you this morning. It will be up there on the screen. And it shows how... With every century, it continues to get bloodier, bloodier, and bloodier. In the 16th century, in conflict-related deaths, there was 1.6 million people, which was 0.32% of the population. You go to the 17th and 18th century, and it hovers around 1%. You go to the 19th century, and it's around 1.65%. And then you see this dramatic jump from 1.65% of the population to 435 from 19.4 million deaths to 109.7 million deaths. And so the question is, if this commandment is universally agreed upon that we should not murder, why is death continuing to escalate? Well, certainly it has to do much with technology that allows us to kill more people but also has to do with technology that breeds this culture of murder. You know, human life is being trivialized all around us. Estimates report that when a child leaves elementary school, he or she will have witnessed 8,000 murders and over 10,000 other acts of violence on TV. By the time they're 18 years of age, they've witnessed over 200,000 acts of violence and 40,000 murders. One 17-year study concluded that teens who watch more than an hour of TV a day were almost four times as likely as other teens to commit aggressive acts in adulthood. And one of the most amazing statistics I found is that 80% of Hollywood executives believe that there is a link between TV violence and real-life violence. Now, as technology has increased, we have things called first-person shooter games in which you go around different Uh, warlike scenarios, and you shoot what looks like real-life people. And so a child or a teen or a person can kill off hundreds, if not thousands, of people before lunchtime. It's interesting, a retired military psychologist, Lieutenant Grossman, who was an expert in teaching people how to overcome their natural reluctance to kill, said that he was shocked to realize that children who watch TV and play violent video games are subject to the same methods, the same conditioning and desensitization that the army uses to train their soldiers. Life has been trivialized. Murder has become a part of comedy. And so I would argue that now more than ever, we need a robust understanding of the sixth commandment, not only to preserve life, but to cherish life as God cherishes life. Now, before we launch into the sermon, I kind of want to give you a warning. 
that we are dealing with a lot of philosophical topics today, a lot of controversial topics. And so what I want to do is provide for you what are the most orthodox and the most broad-based beliefs on these topics. You're free to disagree using God's word. Other Christians have. But I want to present to you what the major biblical theological position is on these issues. And through that, I want to really answer two questions. The first is this. When is it lawful to kill, if ever? And the second is, when is it unlawful to kill? When is it murder? So first, when is it lawful to kill? Is it ever lawful to kill? If you're here today and you're reading in the King James Version, you may have noticed that this commandment it reads a little bit differently. The King James Version translates the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Not thou shalt not murder, but thou shalt not kill. And it's interesting, in preparation for this sermon, almost every commentary and every sermon went out of its way to explain that that is not the most precise translation of the words here in Hebrew. You see, this command is actually two words in Hebrew, a prohibition and the word for murder. There are eight different Hebrew words, which is what the Old Testament was written in, eight different Hebrew words for the word kill. And the one chosen in this particular spot is the word ratsach, which means the unlawful killing of a human being. It is never used in terms of killing an animal and hunting for food, nor is it used in a lawful human killing. It is always used in the case of something that is unlawful, an unlawful killing of another human being. And so it is rightly translated murder. And so when is it lawful to kill? When does this command not apply to one person killing another person? Well, there are three major applications that I want to propose to you this morning. First, it is lawful to kill when you are... I'm sorry, this is not first. This is the overview. It is lawful to kill... When taking life is to preserve life. Another way of putting it, it is lawful to kill when the purpose of killing is not because you have a low view of life, but because you have a high view of life. You're killing not to destroy life, but to save life. And so here are the three applications. The first is this. It's self-defense. This is probably the least controversial of the three. If you or your family are being attacked, you have the right to defend yourself, even if it causes death to the attacker. Two chapters later in Exodus 22, verse 2 and 3, we read the law that if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. In other words, if you are protecting your family, if you're defending your own life, and it takes the life of another to protect your life and the life of your family, there is no guilt for that. And it goes on, it says, but if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. And so in other words, if someone breaks into your house and they escape and the next morning you say, I'm going to get vengeance, I'm going to go after this person, then that's murder because it's not self-defense. It is seeking out to kill somebody without using the governing authorities that God has given to us. And so the first rightful use the, the first rightful use where one might kill another is through self-defense. The next is through what theologians and philosophers call a just war. For an example of this, we just have to turn three chapters earlier to Exodus chapter 17. Maybe you remember it, but the Israelites are 
have crossed the Red Sea and they have come to Rephidim. And at Rephidim, the Amalekites attack them. And they go against the Amalekites with the sword and God blesses them and gives them victory. This is a just war because they are defending themselves. They are preserving life and they are seeking peace. Now throughout history, there have been many, many, many unjust wars. Wars in which men have simply wanted to flex their muscles or gain more territory or show off their power. And as a result of this, theologians and philosophers have spent much time thinking about what constitutes a just war. It was first popularized with Augustine in the 4th century. Aquinas formalized it more in the 13th century. The school of Slamanaka, if I said that right, developed it more in the 1600s. And so really what I want to give to you is the work of 1,700 years of the study of people who are smarter than me, Okay. And this is what they said, these things need to be true in order for a war to be a just war. And these are things that our politicians, our government, hopefully are asking themselves even today as we consider those threats around us. The first principle of a just war is that a just war must be a last resort. A just war can only be waged after all other peaceful options are considered and exhausted. War is a horrible horrible, horrible thing, no matter who wins or who loses. It's horrible for those who die, for the families that lose those who die, but it's also horrible for those who live, those who have returned and are faced with the trauma of war. One site I looked at noted that 40% of Vietnam veterans' marriages failed within six months of the veterans returning from Southeast Asia. And that the overall divorce rate among Vietnam veterans is significantly higher than the general population. And the result of divorce are even higher with veterans that have PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And the statistics are very similar with those who have fought in the Middle East. You see, war is horrible. It destroys people. It destroys families. It destroys nations, even if you're on the winning side. And so it is to be used as a last resort. Secondly, a just war is waged by a legitimate authority. It is not up to just any person to do this, but by a government that has been placed in charge. Third, it must be for a just cause. There must be a just need. It should be for the sake of justice, whether it be for your society or in defending somebody else. The purpose should not be for oil or for land or to exercise your military, but it must be for justice. Fourthly, There must be a probability of success. You shouldn't just send in your troops to be massacred. Fifth, right intention. The primary objective of a just war is to reestablish peace. In particular, the peace after the war must exceed the peace that would would happen if war was not waged. Sixth, proportional force. The nations involved in the war must... Avoid disproportional military action and only use the amount of force absolutely necessary to secure justice. And finally, the seventh is targeted at militia. The use of force must be distinguished between militia and civilians. It should be aimed at the military, not innocent civilians that are trying to live their lives. The death of civilians are only justified when they are absolutely unavoidable. 
This is a lot to cover, and so let me just simplify it with a quote by Stephen Carter, who said, War is horrible and should be fought rarely and only to avoid greater horrors. You know, I'm guessing many of you have served in the military. I'm guessing many of you have friends who have served in war. Some of you may know the things that haunt those who have served in our military honorably. Some of you may not. But war is not something that should be rushed into. It is something that must be taken very slowly and very appropriately. And so what does this mean for us? We have to pray for our leaders. You know, when we lay it out in these seven points, it may seem very black and white, but I'm guessing it's never very black and white. I'm guessing there are various shades of grays in making these decisions. And so pray that God will give wisdom to our leaders. Pray also for the church, that the church would respond appropriately, that we would not just be like lemmings just following the crowd and going wherever the government calls us to go, but that we would challenge when appropriate and support when appropriate, and that we would not just accept things that are thrown our way. And so pray for the government and use the means necessary to protest a war if you think it is appropriate. So killing is just if it is in self-defense, if it was just war, and finally, it is just if it is capital punishment. Like I said, we're covering all the controversial topics today. Early in Genesis, uh, when God flooded the world because the world was filled with wickedness, he brought Noah and his family off of the ark. And he tells them to go to be fruitful and to multiply, to re-inhabit the earth. And then he gives them this command in Genesis 9, 5 through 6. He says, and for your lifeblood, talking about humans, when humans are killed, he says, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from man. For his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. The penalty for killing somebody else is death. And then it goes on, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And then here is the reasoning. For God made man in his own image. The reason why God commands death to be the punishment for murder is not because he has a low view of humanity, but because he has an extraordinarily high view of humanity. Humanity is made in the image of God. People are precious to God. He does not use this terminology to talk about animals. People are eternal creatures. And so they must be defended with the greatest strength. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian theologian, summarizes God's value of people in this way. He says this, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as a life of a gnat. In other words, nations will fade away. We will keep living. But it is immortals whom we joke with, whom with work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. 
Do me a favor. Look at the person in the row next to you. Look at the person next to you. Go ahead. I know it's awkward. Do it anyways. Look at the person next to you. You look in. When the sun fades away, when the mountains wear away, that person will still be living. Either in heaven or in hell for all eternity. And there are people created in the image of God. And so you see, God has the highest view of humanity. Man is precious to God. And so when life is taken, God demands a life in order to protect life. And it protects life both by by taking away those who would murder, but also by a warning to those who think of murdering. And God has given this authority not to us as individuals, but to the government. This is further supported in Romans chapter 13. When it says that the governing authorities is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God gives the authorities the sword in order to take out his wrath, to protect life. And it does this, again, by removing the murderer from our world, but also warning all others who would consider murder. So the Bible says that it is lawful to kill if it is in self-defense, if it is in a just war, and if it is capital punishment, rightly administered, I might say. Now, what does the sixth commandment prohibit? If that's not qualified under this term for murder in the sixth commandment, what exactly is the sixth command prohibiting? What is unlawful killing? What is murder? And there's a couple I want to walk through for the, through here. The first is homicide, which is simply the unlawful killing of one person by another person. This happens in many different ways. It could happen uh, as a cold-blooded homicide, right? It's premeditated. It's planned out, much like King David did when he planned out the death of Uriah um, in the Old Testament. Or like we saw earlier in Exodus 22, if a man goes after a burglar in the morning to kill him, that is premeditated, that is wrong, it is murder. But it could also be hot-blooded murder, a crime of passion. Like when Moses, do you remember when Moses was trying to defend the Israelite who was being abused and he killed the Egyptian servant, the Egyptian taskmaster? He did this in hot blood. It was reactionary. And so he fled for his life because it was wrong. Moses, of all people, who was the prince of Egypt, could have certainly disciplined this man in many different ways. But he was so angry that he allowed his just anger lead him into sin, and he killed a man. A third form of homicide that we don't often think of is negligent homicide. Deuteronomy 22.8 says, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet, which is like a little wall, for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. In our culture, we have things that are helpful like building codes, which are, are are to protect people and to care for people, which are good things. And so we're called to also care for people by not being negligent, whether it be towards our children or towards, towards the homeless or towards whoever it might be, but to care for those and protect life. And so one form of murder is homicide. Another form of murder is suicide, which is to take one's own life voluntarily and 
intentionally. God is the giver of life. He gives us every breath we breathe. He has planned out our days for us. He has determined how long we will live. He thinks our life is precious and valuable. He has plans for our life. You are made in his image. And when a person commits suicide, they are denying all of these truths. They fail to believe that God is in control. They fail to believe that God can redeem broken things. They fail to believe that God is good. Suicide is self-murder. You know, there is a, I guess you could say, a theology in the church at large that suicide is an unforgivable sin that has no biblical warrant whatsoever. Because if we look to Christ, Christ paid for our sin, both past, present, and future. It is a sin against God to kill yourself, but it is not an unforgivable sin. You know, our culture has other names for suicide as well. Fancy names like euthanasia. Euthanasia is the painless killing of a patient who is suffering from a terminal or a painful disease. It's a form of suicide where you gain assistance from another person. Some call it mercy killing, and yet generations ago, it was considered an act of war. Currently, four U.S. states have legalized euthanasia, as well as at least seven countries in the world. I think it's important at this point to make sure there's a clarification that removing life support is far different than giving someone medication to kill them. Removing life support is allowing someone to follow their natural process of death. Removing life support is allowing someone not to artificially elongate their life and elongate their suffering and elongate their pain, but allow the Lord to take them in his timing. Just earlier this month, I had a good friend who was in a hospital in Michigan, and he had some strokes and aneurysms and, and was left really unable to respond, and he was put on life support. And a friend was there beside him and asked him, do you want to be removed from life support? And through the squeezing of hands, was able to communicate that he did indeed want to be removed he was a great man, a godly man, a man that I very much appreciate. And he's now with his Savior. But this is a decision that you will face, either for yourself or for your parents. And so it's important to know and to see that we don't need to artificially elongate life, that we can go when the Lord calls us home. And so murder happens through homicide, through suicide, Two more. Thirdly, through abortion, which is the killing of a child in the womb. Exodus 21, one chapter over. In verse 23 through 25, it says this. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, maybe they're wrestling around, maybe they're whatever, and they run into a pregnant woman, so that her child, children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. And then it says this, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life 
for life. If there is harm, you should pay life for life. In other words, the fetus is a life. The fetus is a human being. And if the fetus dies, it is of the same proportion as a grown man. And so he must pay his life for the life of the child in the womb because they are both made in the image of God. They're both human beings. They're both alive. And so God commands that if a man kills a baby in the womb, that his life shall be taken. Abortion is murder. And it comes in many forms. It might come in physical abuse, such as here in Exodus 21. It might come at a doctor's prodding. It might even come in the form of a pill. But whatever way it comes, it is murder. It's amazing how in many high schools in America, a student can obtain a morning after pill far easier than they can obtain an aspirin. It is so prevalent and so easy in our society, and yet it is always murder. You know, our world is terribly inconsistent on this issue. Even if you take our own state of Wisconsin, where abortion is legal. Four months ago, there was a, there was a case in which a man was driving down the road, and he had too much pot to smoke. He was high. And he crossed the center line and he ran into another car and the woman in another car was pregnant. And as a result of the crash, she lost her baby. And that man was charged with homicide. Now, the only difference between that woman and a woman that goes in for the abortion is that in one case, the baby is wanted. And in the other case, the baby isn't wanted. And so somehow our society has tied the value of the baby to whether the mom wants the child. But the good news is, God values that child. God always values that child. And to abort that child is murder. God calls us to fight against this genocide that is happening in our country. To fight against this genocide with truth and love. By praying with and for people. By engaging people. By loving people who are maybe in the very despair of life, overwhelmed by an unexpected pregnancy, calls us to love people and to fight for truth by praying against those that are performing the abortions. Even this Saturday, there's an opportunity. There's a nationwide protest against Planned Parenthood from 9 to 11 a.m. If you want the details, I'd be happy to send it to you. But it's an opportunity to go and to use our voices to fight for those who have no voice. And so it is unlawful murder to, to abort a child, to commit suicide, to commit homicide. And finally, it is unlawful murder simply when you hate someone. You know, when people are trying to convince themselves and other people that they are a morally good person, they kind of know that they've broken most of the commandments, but they kind of gravitate towards this one, don't they? They say, well, at least I haven't murdered anybody. Have you ever heard somebody said that? You know, at least I'm not Hitler, right? Like that's who we're supposed to be comparing ourselves to. At least I haven't murdered anybody. And Jesus undermines that argument. And he targets the sin beneath the sin of murder. Matthew chapter 5, 
verse 21 through 24, Jesus says this, you have, heard it, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. That sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? Verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, if you're engaged in worship, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Jesus is telling us that at the very core of this commandment that we shall not murder is hatred. It's anger towards our brother and sister, and it's a refusal to engage in reconciliation. Reconciliation is such a priority for God that he tells us that we are liable to the fire of hell if we do not engage it. He tells us to leave our gift at the altar and to go and seek out reconciliation. God appeals for us to go and be reconciled because he knows that it not only affects our relationship with him, but also reflects, it also affects our relationship with the church. And it also affects our own heart and our own soul. Jesus commands us to pursue reconciliation because he knows that unaddressed conflict and unreconciled relationships will not only affect all of the important relationships in your life, but it will also rot away your soul. C.S. Lewis, again, has many great quotes. He puts it this way. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. For some of you, unforgiveness is something that you struggle with deeply. That you have refused to be reconciled with somebody. And it's stolen your tenderness and your joy and your compassion and your refusal to pursue reconciliation and your need always to be right and to get a pound of flesh. You have distanced yourself from everybody and you have created an unbreakable, impenetrable, and untouchable heart. And so let me ask you this question. Who are you angry with? Who do you hate? As Chad led us in prayer earlier, who came to mind as someone that maybe you avoid? Maybe it's someone from your previous church. Maybe it's your previous pastor. Maybe it's someone in your community group that you really wish wasn't in your community group. 
Maybe it's someone here in the auditorium that said something that was offensive to you. But my guess is, for most of us, the person that we get the most angry with, the person that we are most tempted to murder in our heart, is a person that's sitting in your row, or a person that might be sitting in your row, someone that is in your own household, whether it be your husband or your wife that you get so angry at, So quickly, and you hold on to those grudges, and it gives you a hard heart towards them. And you're temperamental because you hold on to this bitterness and anger. Or maybe if you are a parent, you are angry towards your children because they do not appreciate everything they do for you. Or maybe if you're a child, you're angry towards your parents because you think their rules are unfair. Now we know that there is a righteous anger, but this is unrighteous anger, that we're entertaining it and we're not pursuing one another towards reconciliation. You know, pursuing reconciliation is hard. It takes courage. It takes reaching out. It takes loving your enemy. It takes having hard conversation. It even takes being vulnerable. But pursuing reconciliation is not a suggestion from Christ. It is a command from Christ. Because pursuing reconciliation is what makes you fully human. Pursuing reconciliation with one another creates reconciliation between us and God. What relationship do you need to pursue reconciliation in? The other person may not even know that you're mad with the, at them or that you're angry at them. Who do you need to pursue and have a conversation with, a difficult conversation with? You know, they may reject you, but you can't control how they respond. You can only control your actions and be faithful to what God has called you to do. God calls us to pursue reconciliation. Let me end with this. Gary Ridgway is a serial killer known as the Green River Killer. He was convinced, he was convicted of 49 separate murders, also confessed to 49 separate murders in the 1980s in Washington state, making him the most prolific serial killer in history. At Ridgeway's trial, members of the victims were given the opportunity to address the killer directly. Understandably, many of the family members, members who came forth had suffered great anguish and they came and they lashed out at him. And they said things such as, Rest assured that you will spend eternity in hell, which you deserve. In the midst of the family members coming forth to express their deep pain and their deep sorrow, there was a man, 63 years of age, looked like Santa Claus, named Robert Rule. And he stepped up to the podium. His daughter had been raped and murdered by Gary Ridgway. And as he stepped up with a quiet kind of hesitant voice he said to his daughter's killer looking him in the face he said mr ridgeway there are people here who hate you i'm not one of them i forgive you for what you have done you've made it difficult to live up to what i believe and what god says to do and that is to forgive and he doesn't say to forgive certain people he says to forgive all So you are forgiven, sir. For the first time, 
the Ridgeway's rough demeanor, the killer's demeanor broke. He'd taken all of the insults, all of the criticisms, all the people that he was telling them that he was a monster with a stone face. And finally, this guy comes to him and he says, because God has called me to, I forgive you. And he breaks down and is sobbing in the middle of the court because that type of forgiveness is simply unbelievable. It's unwarranted. It's unexpected. And it's too good to be true. Can I tell you a secret? You are a murderer. You are. All of you have murdered physically or in your heart. You have murdered. Maybe you have murdered in hot blood or cold blood, taken someone's life. Maybe you have promoted murder and suicide or euthanasia. Maybe you have murdered by having or supporting an abortion. Or maybe you have murdered simply by hating somebody in your heart. All of us are murderers. And as we've read today, the just punishment for murder is death. But here is the good news, the best news, the gospel news. No matter how atrocious your murder is, there is grace and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. The unwarranted, unexpected, and simply unbelievable forgiveness of God. You see, Jesus died for murderers. He not only died in the place of a murderer, Barabbas, but Jesus died for murderers. Do you remember what Jesus said when he was hanging upon the cross? It's recorded in the Gospel of Luke. We read that when they came up to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, nailing his hands and his feet into the cross, hanging him up to suffocate and to die. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who is the them that Jesus is talking about? When he says, Father, forgive them, who is the them? Well, some commentators will say it's the Roman soldiers that murdered him. Others will say it's the Jewish leaders who were enforcing his murder. Whatever it might be, the them that Jesus is talking about is murderers. See, Jesus was murdered for murderers, which means Jesus was murdered for you and for me, that we might no longer be labeled by our history or by our past or by our hatred, but that we might be labeled sons and daughters of God. No matter how atrocious your murder has been, Jesus offers to take the penalty for you. Jesus offers to take your punishment upon himself. If you trust in Christ as your Savior, you will not be judged as your sin deserves, but you will be judged according to his righteousness. Jesus took on our death penalty that we could be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. Thou shall not murder, but live for the glory of God of God. Let's pray. Lord, this topic at the very surface seems so far from us, God, but it is, it it influences almost every aspect of our life. And so God, pray you give us discernment and wisdom. Lord, I pray for those who are here today who, who are angry, 
who are just boiling inside when they think of a certain person. God, pray that you would give them the grace to look at the plank in their own eye, to go to that person with mercy and tenderness and compassion, as you call us to, to go to that person, to meet with them, and to seek out reconciliation. And Lord, I pray for the people that they approach, that that person would also be open to forgiveness and reconciliation as well. Lord, help us by your Holy Spirit to love one another as Christ loved us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.